the idea was originally invented at MUSC by a physician who thought she noticed when patients would come in with, with head injuries that when she would speak with them, she felt like their blink looked different than someone who wasn't impaired. But there wasn't really a way to test that. Welcome to Innovatively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. This is the show where we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, and the how. We explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at MUSC and in some cases all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Jesse. Good morning, Kevin. All right, today we're talking about some really interesting technology, interesting to me at least. We're, we're talking to Ryan Fiorini. Tell me a little bit about how he came across your path and why he's our guest today. Yeah, so Ryan and I actually intersected when I first started working here, um, although I had seen his name prior to that because he'd actually had the job that I first stepped into years before I had had it. Um, and at the time, he um, was working on developing a technology that had come out of MUSC. Um, and so we were sort of looking at each other as sort of a, a licensee tech transfer office relationship. And that's how I originally met Ryan. Um, but fast forward a few years, and I had the great opportunity to actually uh, work with Ryan in terms of uh, handing him another technology that he's really done a fantastic job um, sort of bringing forward. He's a serial entrepreneur, and I'm really grateful that he decided to make his current venture one of MUSC's. Well, I'm excited to hear all about it, so let's dive right in. Dr. Brian Fiorini, welcome to the Innovatively Speaking podcast. Let's start a little bit about uh, with with you and and sort of your your path here. You know, Jesse said a little bit in the startup that you've had a couple different uh, positions here in MUSC. Tell me how you how you came into the into the role that started you and then how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So thanks for having me. So what got me to Charleston was I grew up up in Michigan, went to college in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I met a transplant surgeon um, who's no longer here, but um, met him. He was just getting started here and needed graduate students. So I came down to Charleston, absolutely loved it as everybody does. That was 23 years ago. Did my PhD and about halfway through my PhD, I knew that um, I, I was not cut out to stay in academia. Um, I, I really enjoyed the commercial, be able to commercialize um, technologies and ideas. And so I finished my PhD. I did my MBA at the Citadel. Um, and then I came to work, as Jesse said, I came to work uh, at the tech transfer office at FRD. And I uh, worked there for about five years. During that time, I saw a technology I really liked. I um, went through the process of licensing it and started the company, um, built it, and ended up selling that um, in uh, two, late 2011. And have just ever have done that ever since, and start a company, build it, and uh, that's kind of the part I really like is finding something that's very academic, very um, new, needs to be commercialized, and build it to the point where it's ready to be moved on by a bigger company or um, or be sold and uh, and handed off at that point. And so that's most recently what I've done with uh, with Blink TBI. Well, let's, let's talk about that then. That's the, obviously the sort of what's on the table today is Blink TBI. Tell me what, what it is and, and why the listener would be so interested in this technology because it's fascinating to me. Yeah, so it was 
the, the idea was originally invented at MUSC um, by a physician who thought she noticed when patients would come in with, with head injuries that when she would speak with them, she felt like their blink looked different than someone who wasn't, uh, who wasn't impaired. And, but there wasn't really a way to test that. So she went at the at that point. She went to the tech transfer office and to and to Zian, and um, they they figured out a way to stimulate the blink. And they do that. Uh, it's the corneal reflex. So they did that using uh, either a puff of air uh, across the eyelashes, pretty light puff, uh, a stimulus of light, or actually sound. And either of those three will work. Uh, we use air because it's it's easier, and you don't have to worry about outside light and sound. So that idea came about, and we started out using that for concussion. So I licensed the technology with with a co-founder and built the company, raised the money, and we were able to get the technology down to a a relatively small device, about four and a half pounds, uh, just sits on a little tripod. And the idea is is you puff the air across somebody's eye, and there's high-speed cameras in there, and based on the blink... And it's a lot of things. It's the timing from when the air hits the eye till the eye closes. It's the speed of the closing. It's how long the eye stays closed. There's a over a hundred things parameters that we look at, and from that we are able to tell if someone was concussed. What ended up happening though, we started as blink TBI, and the TBI being traumatic brain injury. Um, when COVID hit that made it very difficult to sell a device to schools and sports teams. And so we had to kind of figure out what else to do. And we always wanted to look at central nervous system diseases. Um, And so we went out, we figured out kind of what diseases to look into, and we started uh, looking at those. And so right now we're we're looking at Parkinson's, um, ADHD, we've looked at migraines, um, dementia, and, um, and we're also starting to potentially look at stroke. So with that blink reflex, you're able to tell a lot of things because of the signal all goes through the brain stem and that's what that reflex is looking at. And all of those conditions have sort of a signature blink? They do, that's yeah. That's wild. So there's, there's a handful of parameters that are across all of them. And then each of those diseases have something in what we call independent variables variables that are only for those diseases. This is a, a technology that I have had a long history with, so I'll, I'll try not to be super weedy. But one of the things that I think is really fascinating that I didn't realize until I started working on it um, is how how many sort of parameters there are associated with any one particular person's blink. Um, because when we look at somebody, right, it looks honestly like their eyes are moving synchronously and they, you know, we all sort of blink similarly. Um, but what I thought was really fascinating was that, you know, when you can look at it in slow motion and start to really take out some measurements, um, your eyelids don't actually move at the same time, which I think is really fascinating. You know, they don't always close fully or open fully. And so that ability to, to really start to put some hard numbers to, to describe a person's blink, I thought was like truly fascinating because, you know, we've been looking at people blinking since, honestly, since the moment we were born. And, and I think it's imperceptible, um, the way that we do it and the, and the 
changes that can occur even at a very small level that are um, indications that something may be wrong. We don't have to wait till someone has their like quote unquote bell rung um, where then it's super obvious. I mean, you can, Ryan's able to collect some really um, almost, well, truly imperceptible (laughs) uh, data uh, to start to look at, you know, these hallmarks of, of that. And then the fact that the changes that happen across any one of those diseases actually produces their own change. Um, I think it's just, it's a really kind of cool science field that it's been fun to watch it sort of go from a vision that, that Dr. Sai had to, to what you've been able to turn it into. Yeah, the high-speed camera has been key. You know, we're looking at um, millisecond changes. So from someone who's concussed to not concussed, we're looking at about a two millisecond difference. And our eyes can perceive about a 50 millisecond that's about what we can see. So we're on you know, 25 times faster than we could even perceive that with our own eyes. Well, let's start with where it started, which is around the area of concussions with sports, sports injuries. Um, tell me how the technology works for that particular application and how you're developing it to become something that's useful there. When we began, we needed a, a baseline on, on players. And um, so beginning of the year, player goes in for a, a physical and we would be there with them and we would scan them when ideally they hadn't been concussed at least since last season. Right. <laughs> um, and then and that gave us a, a baseline, a number to, to look, look back at in the event they were concussed. Is there a standard number across all players roughly or to, is it is it to the individual you have like a, a fingerprint yeah, yeah right yeah so at that point there was not yeah at, okay in, in early on it was we did not see any connections um over the course of the last four or five years we've hit the point where uh there's differences in age gender and race and so if we know those three things we ask those three things of every patient we actually don't need a baseline anymore. It's always going to be better. It's going to be more precise. And if we don't have it, we can't say here's where, or we can't say you're back to where you were because yeah, we don't know yeah, where you were. Correct. Yeah. But most people are are pretty close. Um, but as Jesse said, everybody we call it a fingerprint because everybody is just a little different. Uh, but for the most part, if we don't have a baseline, what we can tell you is because this, the test is so quick, the test is about 30 seconds, we can test somebody every day. And at some point, you're going to get better, and then you're, and then you're going to plateau. And the numbers are all going to stay the same. And then we know, okay, you're back to where you need to be. It may not be back to where you were. We may not know that, but we at least know that you're probably okay to, to go back out and, and uh, you know, play the sports again or whatever it is. Ryan, can you, sticking with the concussion sort of uh, use case, can you speak a little bit about why using a reflex was important? Because there are other concussion tests that are out there that are in the market and being used. So so why is this so important? I, I think probably the biggest reason was you, you can't cheat it. So, well, I guess really two reasons. One, you can't cheat it. And two, a lot of sports, um, let, let's say hockey, for example, professional hockey, a lot of players don't speak English, right? So 
the tests that exist right now are very subjective tests. They're written down and a doctor sits in front of somebody and will, and will list off, for example, one of the tests is list off four words and there's eight choices that they can choose. And so those four words might be apple, pear, grape, watermelon. And then they'll talk to the person and then a few minutes later they'll say, now repeat those four things back to me, but do it backwards. Well, if you don't speak English and you don't know what those four things are, how do you take that test? And so that was very difficult for when we started working with professional teams. Um, the second is, you know, when you're working, people want to play their sports, right? They, they, they want to be okay for the most part. Uh, let's say they get in a car accident. Most people want to go back to work. They want to be okay. And when you're younger, I know when I was 18, I played professional hockey and I know I when, I, when a doctor ever asked me, I know I said I was always fine and I probably wasn't all the time. And so the key to this test is it can't be cheated. So it's, it's the same as when you were a kid and you'd go in for a, for a physical and the doctor would tap your knee with, with a hammer and your leg would move. So that's testing um, one of your nerves in, uh, in your spine. The test that we do, corneal reflex, is looking at your brain stem. So everything travels through it. There's no way to cheat it. If something touches your eyelash, you will blink unless there is a major issue. And I should say the changes we see from concussed to non-concussed is can be as little as a fraction of a millisecond. Let's go back to the, the football player who just came off the field. We've already got his baseline um, from the beginning of the season. He gets hit real hard. He comes off the field. This is where this product comes into play. Walk us through how that works. There, there is a little bit of time you need to wait. Um, we found a few years ago, we did a, a study um, to find that the heart rate does need to come down below a certain level. Uh, and that's actually for all tests out there. Um, and so we, we published that a few years ago that you do need to wait for that. Otherwise, you're just not getting accurate data. Um, player comes off and you know, five, 10 minutes later, uh, the athletic trainer, a neurologist, depending on who it is, will start talking to the player. And that's probably the best test there is, is just speaking to that person. And oftentimes the medical professionals know these players, uh, especially when you get up to high school and college and professional. They know them. They know, are they acting differently? Uh, they will ask questions of that person. Do you have a headache? Is, is it too bright? Is the sound bothering you? Things like that. Um, we would then test them. So they would put their face in the device. Uh, it's started and it goes down this 30 second. It, it completely takes over the computer, does everything. It decides randomly where it's going to puff, whether the left eye or the right eye. It actually, it does it random times as well. So you don't know whether it's coming from the left or the right, and you don't know when it's coming. And it's, it's essentially to startle you. And most people do get startled. I've taken it probably a thousand times. I still jump every single puff I get. So we would test that person, and we would probably see a result a few minutes after. Um, but the best result that we found is an hour later test and then 
subsequent to that until the player is is back to. Uh, we look for a few things. One is um, asymptomatic. So they're now saying, I don't have any symptoms. I don't have a headache. The lights aren't bothering me. I feel ready to go back. We then will continue to test until we see everything go back to where that baseline was. Or in some cases, it never goes back to where it was. So if you have enough small concussions or some very large concussions, it you will not ever get back to where you were. And I think that's really, that's something as a, as a parent and a, a kids who play, who played, uh, who play soccer, who play uh, tackle football, it's not as much getting the concussion. Ideally, if you never got a concussion, that's that's the perfect world. But also not doing any sports is probably not good for you either. So getting a concussion is okay. The key is is to not go back and get another concussion until that first one has has healed. In a sort of defined group of people like athletes, right? It is possible to get a baseline test because you know what your team is going to be. You can do it at the beginning of the season and then you have this opportunity after a head impact to test them again. Um, but knowing that the the vision um, was always that that this would be more than just a use for a concussion, that, that we might be able to use the blink reflexes, sort of the the thermometer, if you will, towards your whole sort of neurological state and, and be able to use it for other diseases. Um, can you speak a little bit about why that baseline is kind of limiting and that how the being able to remove that based on the data that you found has opened the door to these other fields and what those may look like? Yeah. It, so think of it instead of sports. You're right. Sports are easy. The other one that was easy to get a baseline is the military, right? Everybody has to go through boot camp or whatever it is, or all report to the same place. But think about uh, in car accidents. There would be no way for me to scan every single person in the world or every single driver, or it certainly would be difficult. You'd have to get in with the state and the DMV and start scanning people, and you're still going to get people from out of state. And So we always wanted to get to the point where we didn't need baselines. And one of the first examples that we had to do this was we um, had just started and we had a board member who had a daughter who, uh, I'm sorry, a granddaughter who had fallen off a horse. And um, she came in and we we scanned her. We didn't have a baseline on her. We knew her age and she was college age. So we had a ton of other college athletes of her um, gender and her age and her race. And that's when we started kind of saying, well, here's where approximately you would normally be. And um, and again, we never knew whether she went back to where she was, but we did know over the course of, for her, it was a couple months, did she finally, did her blink reflex finally sort of plateau back to where it was? So while athletes and military is a huge market, to be able to open this up to all the other markets, which kind of brought us to the central nervous system markets, not needing a baseline was really important. And um, thankfully, you know, we're at point now where we've gotten uh, about 40,000 scans that we have. Um, you know, in, in our database, we have about 40,000 scans. And when we hit, we thought we'd need about 10,000. And that was probably correct for one disease state. But we also needed them for normals. We needed it for then Parkinson's. 
And so it, it just, we just scan as much as we can. And, and one of the things that that's brought us to is sort of some of our next devices. You know, I mentioned that four and a half pound device that we've used, but we're now moving that beyond um, having this big device that you have to lug around. Well, let's talk about that as well as some of these other conditions such as Parkinson's. What other, what other neurological conditions would this apply to and how does, how does that work? So it works actually the same way. Uh, we, so in March of 2020, when COVID shut down, you know, my, my PhD was immunology and microbiology. And so when COVID's going around and I'm hearing, you know, it's going to be two weeks, you know, the immunologist in me was saying, this is never going away. This will be here forever. And it certainly is not going to be two weeks. And so I met with my board and we, we, discussed what we should do. We had gotten our FDA approval December, late December of 2019. We brought in uh, a sales team. We trained them in February of 2020. And on March 1st of 2020, we handed them devices and kits to go out and sell around the United States. And then 15 days later, they all kind of went, yeah, every school and every sports team is now closed. And we we contemplated just shutting down, going bankrupt and handing the technology back to MUSC and just saying, you know, we, we did our best. And um, thankfully, the board said, you know, you know what, you've wanted to go after these other diseases. You've mentioned them. You know, we talked about them in our license when we licensed it originally. We just traumatic brain injury was sort of the low hanging fruit. Yeah, it was somewhere. Yeah. Right. And it was the it was the data that had already been yeah. um, accomplished from from the Citadel. So we, we knew that worked, but in 2020, we, in March, we grabbed uh, a few physicians um, and some experts and we went out and we said a few things. We said, we need to find what other diseases this could work for. So what neurological diseases do potentially work through the brainstem? Because that's where we know this is working. And then where are the experts in each of those fields? So. I think we came to about 10 different diseases. And then we went out and we said, all right, let's try to find some trials that we could do in each of these areas. And we want the best of the best, the best um, key opinion leader, KOL. So we went out, we found those people, and I think we had maybe seven or eight that we found. And we started trials on all of those. And those were Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, dementia, um, even migraines uh, locally here, um, drugs of abuse. Um, th- there were a few others that we, we looked at. And when the data came back from all of these, we were kind of shocked. It worked on all of them. We, we, saw, we saw a fingerprint, as we call it, on every single disease. And it was unexpected and it sounds like a great problem, but it but it, it's when you're trying to run the business, it, it's not still a problem. It's still a problem. And so, where do you put your money? You know, you only have a certain amount of money. So, where do you put that? And so, we ended up having to bring in some some business people from from industry, medical device industry, to tell us, hey, here's the big areas. Here's where I would focus if I were you. And that has to do with the number of people that have that disease, um, 
whether there's already um, therapies for it or other diagnosis for them. Um, and and quite frankly, what could we sell this for? If we were to sell it, where's the most likely place to be able to sell the disease? You have to be able to pay the bills. And so we ended up bringing this down to really three, three kind of areas. Um, so Parkinson's is one, uh, ADHD diagnosis, and that was a that was just a fishing expedition type research that started out as a retrospective study looking at football players, and we realized that some things looked weird. And then when we dug in, we saw that the things that looked weird were because those players were on ADHD medicines. And so then we conducted a prospective study and found that indeed the data did look as good as it did, and we were able to detect more or less what drug they're on. Uh, potentially if they should be on it or not, whether they're taking it and they maybe don't need it, or whether they need potentially a different drug. And those are kind of the three areas for that. But what it did was it it really opened it up. We ended up also, so the company originally was Blink TBI, the traumatic brain injury, and now we're essentially doing business as Blink CNS for central nervous system. Yeah, we talk a lot about creative problem solving on this, and I think it's just fundamental to any innovation, right? And particularly as you're moving it ahead, it can take lots of different forms, but there's always going to be a pain point or a problem that you're going to be forced to step back and sort of figure out what's the creative solution to still move this ahead. So and you've been able to do that successfully. Well, let's look into the future a little bit with the pandemic loosening up, kind of get back in to where you were, and then we've expanded it to a couple other areas. But what do you see for long-term use for this particular technology? Where, where do you see it going in the next 10 years or so? One of the problems with a medical device is once you design it and you put the, the hardware inside of it, it has to go through a lot of testing, regulatory testing to make sure it's not putting out uh, electromagnetic interference, interfering with people's cell phones or emergency radios, things like that. Instead, we took the processing power and the camera the high-speed cameras in your cell phone, which everybody updates, if we use that as the hardware, then A, that brings the cost of the device, excluding the cell phone, down to about $100. And there's one little custom chip inside. And so our newest device that we're launching here very soon, certainly this year, is about $100, it, you hold it to your face, it looks like a VR headset, you take your cell phone, you slide it in there, uh, Apple or Android, it uses a certain app that we've built, and it, it takes over your camera, turns it into high-speed camera, and uh, is able to capture everything you need. Um, for the AirPuff, we have a, a small chip that's built into the headset, and it, it costs us like a dollar, and you plug a USB in there, and that's what powers the whole device is off your phone, and you're able to get uh, the exact same data that you could get from a device that originally cost us, the first generation we got that we licensed from ESC cost us about $12,000 to build. The generation three that we got FDA approved cost us about $4,000 to build. Uh, we built a generation four that I mentioned, the parts you know, with crypto, that came to be about $2,500. 
$3,000 to build. And now we're to the point where it now weighs, ex- exclude the phone, it weighs less than half a pound, then it costs less than $100 and uses your phone. There's other diseases that we don't need a puff of air. So the app now is able to, um, and this is really one of the biggest steps for us was switching to using um, artificial intelligence, using AI. And so over the last year and a half, we've trained our AI to be able to track the eyelids almost with 100% accuracy. And so we're also able to weed out issues that we had with the old algorithm. So the old algorithm only knows what it knows, right? It only knows what, what it was told to do. So one example was if someone wore really thick mascara, the system thought that the dark of the mascara was the pupil and it couldn't find the eye. And so we couldn't scan anybody that had a lot of mascara or eye makeup on. With AI, you just take a bunch of pictures with a lot of mascara and you tell it, don't look at this, look at this. Or if somebody has a mask on while they're getting scanned, we just say, don't worry about the mask. You teach it that and within an, a day, we've retaught the system and it's able to do what we need it to do. So for Parkinson's, for example, you don't need the puff of air. And so you open the app um, for a Parkinson's patient, it will, their doctor may say, okay, I want you to test once a week when they get on this new medicine and we want to see how the medicine's doing. So once a week, a pop-up shows up on their phone, on their app, they click it, they hold it in front of them, they hit start, it tracks the face. It, the AI is looking in real time to make sure it only sees one face. So it'll look and it'll say, if, it, if there's someone behind you, it's going to say there's too many faces in the, and it'll even see photos. So if you have like a photo, you know, of grandma behind you, it's going to see that photo and it's going to say, no, nope, you need no faces or only one face. Uh, needs to be able to see the eyes, needs to make sure that it's, you're not too far, not too close. It'll tell you, make sure there's enough lighting. Uh, 20 seconds later, it will take that. Uh, it goes to the cloud securely and almost in real time comes back and says, um, you know, your data is complete. That all goes to the doctor and the doctor can see that data and then hopefully decide this patient needs a different drug. There's, there's a number of drugs to give, a number of doses to give for Parkinson's, for example. And are we giving them the right drug or should we give something else? Should we give a higher dose, a lower dose? So, Ryan, you've really made extraordinary progress in terms of moving the, the technology ahead. Um, are there specific locations or examples of locations that have adopted this for any one of the numerous indications that you've spoken about that you're, that you're proud of and you want to share? Yeah, there's, there's a few that, I mean, we're, we're really proud of almost all of them, but um, a few that really stand out that have done a lot of publishing on the, on the device. Um, one example is that there's a, a group um, out in the Midwest uh, that the VA purchased them, uh, research at the VA purchased a, a number of them, and is doing research in uh, PTSD of veterans and looking at uh, their blink reflex and associating it to PTSD. Um, another that has made a lot of strides for us is in um, is in Italy, in Rome, Italy. Uh, the researcher there is is really well known in Parkinson's research, and that was a 
we gave them or sold them the three devices and they did Parkinson's research on it and uh, have independently published that uh, in the last six months. And that was a really, that was really big for us because everything before that we were somehow connected to, but that physician, we sent the devices to them and they did the study complete. We didn't even know what the study was until we saw the results. So it was a little scary, but um, the, the outcome was, was wonderful. And then um, I, th I think the, the last one is um, there's a few schools that are doing um, research on uh, drugs of abuse, and that could be kind of twofold. One, that could be opiates, which you know we know is a huge problem. But another that may not think about as much is marijuana. And so if you think about a, a police officer pulls somebody over in a state where marijuana is, is legal, and are they okay to drive? And right now, the test is holding a pen up and moving it across the face and looking at the, the shakiness of the eyes, the cicadic eye movement. And that's not really, it's not fair to the person who's getting tested. It's not fair to the police officer who has to make a decision with you know a couple hours of training as to whether somebody has the right reflexes and able to drive. And so there's some groups that are using this now to test the patient and or the subject to decide whether they their reflexes, their involuntary reflexes are fast enough in order to be able to drive. And so that's been interesting to see kind of where that data is going because ultimately now that it's become an app, that could end up in every police car. And so now if you're driving and you've smoked marijuana five hours ago, or let's say a day ago, so it's still in your system. So they give a blood test, it's going to show up or urine test is going to show up, but you might be completely fine to drive. And there's really, there's not a good objective way to test that right now. And so if you were just able to do it with an app and be able to say, yep, you're fine to drive, go ahead and let the person go um, or vice versa. You know, I think that's, those are the ones that, those are the research, the pieces of research that we're really excited to see. And I think it's the breadth of all of them that we're seeing. There are other people that have purchased them. They're using them for areas that we never even thought of. And, um, you know, they're going to subsequently publish on those, which is exciting. Um, there's some, um, some research in soccer right now, women's soccer being done at uh, University of Indiana. Uh, there's some concussion research at, um, at Vanderbilt that's being done, um, some other work up at University of Buffalo, and uh, really across the world that, um, that have our devices that we're excited to continually update them and give them the new versions as well to see what they can do. Yeah, that independent validation is um, so critical um, to just, I don't know, further, well, to further validate <laughs> uh, the, the technology and all of its uses. So kudos to you for, for being able to move it out there and having so many uh, institutions and, and places interested in, in trying it and exploring additional fields of use. So you've really done a great job. Thank you. And our, our tagline around here is changing what's possible. And I think this is a perfect example of that. You have created a technology that is truly changing what's possible and looks like it's going to continue to do so into the future. So we just want to thank you so much for spending some time here at Innovatively Speaking. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been 
listening to the Innovatively Speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate. Thank you.